0: Gracious Heavenly Father, for all the mercies with which you have surrounded us in your grace, we praise you tonight that we are alive and that we are here, that we are with your people, that it is our joy to praise you, that we have within our hearts the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal glory. We are of all men and women and boys and girls, most privileged and indeed most to be envied. We marvel at your grace that you have brought us from the deepest pit to the highest heaven, that you have opened the windows of heaven and poured out upon us in Jesus Christ every spiritual blessing. We pray as we come towards the end of this year. And as we wait upon you in your word, that you will have a word to speak to us, a word for every day of the year, but also a word for this day of the year, a word for all of us, but also a word that touches and transforms each one of us. And so we wait upon you in joy, in expectation, in hunger, and in thirst and in obedience. And so we pray, speak, Lord, and show us Your grace, for Jesus our Saviour's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now we're turning again this evening to Romans chapter 8 and to verses 31 through 39. If your Bible didn't automatically open at Romans chapter 8, uh, Six months ago, it's probably opening there now. That's usually a sign it's time to get a new Bible, which is for some of us a very irritating thing to have to do, but there are plenty of Bibles available today that have all the pages in the Bible just where the Order of Service says the pages in the Bible. And uh, we're going to read, therefore, from our English Standard Versions And from Romans chapter 8, and the passage begins on page 944. Paul is coming to a climax of Romans chapter 8, and in many ways a climax to the first eight chapters of this mighty epistle, and he writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, we've been in Romans chapter 8 now for somewhere between two and three months I think this is the tenth of our studies in this chapter. I think it may be the 52nd sermon in our series in Romans. And I have not forgotten that I promised you we would get through it in a year and a half. And a normal year and a half has 78 Sundays, which means we are now about halfway through Romans. And I have used up two-thirds of the sermons. And so we are faced with something of a challenge. But despite that, that is a challenge for next year, and it is a marvelous thing for us at the end of this year to linger on here in Romans chapter 8, because we've come to a point where it seems to me in this ascent of this uh, gospel Himalayas, the apostle Paul is now at the point where he is taking the deepest breath he has yet taken. You know how that is. You are faced with uh, some climb and you take a deep breath and you press on with the climb. And it's interesting that Paul has signaled to us throughout the first eight chapters of Romans that there are various points at which he's taken breath because he keeps on using a more or less identical expression. For example, in chapter 3 and verse 9, he asks the question, what then? He has been giving us his teaching, and he pauses, and he says, he takes his breath, and he says, what then? And then he has a run at the answer. And then as we go on, we find him doing this yet again, In chapter 4 and verse 1, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather? Again in chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? And in chapter 6, verse 15, what then? And you see, he is signaling to us, almost like major punctuation marks, in his argument and in his reasoning as he goes on, and again in chapter 7 and verse 7, what then shall we say? But when he comes, as we've seen, to chapter 8 and verse 31, he is taking an enormously deep breath, because what he wants to compass in his thinking here is the answer to his question in the face of everything I have written from chapter 1 verse 1 through to chapter 8 and verse 30, what is our response to this gospel of God that I have been expounding? What is our response? How can we react? What is the impact that all this has made upon us? And you remember how we saw that He responds essentially by challenging the whole world. It's as though he is standing on a mountain peak and looking around, and he throws out these questions. It's not clear to whom he's throwing out these questions earlier on. It looks as though his questions are directed against those who either misunderstand his teaching or are opposed to his teaching but here as he stands, as it were, in the high mountain air that he's reached as he's come to the summit of his exposition, it's as though he's shouting down the mountains and into the valleys to anybody who will listen. And he has these four great questions, all of them beginning with the interrogative personal pronoun, who. Who can be against us? If God is for us? The answer, no one. Who can bring any accusation against God's people that will stick? The answer, no one. Who can bring any condemnation against God's people that will stand? The answer, no one. And so he comes to his final question, about which we have just been singing in Jim Boyce's hymn. Who then can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And when you look down at this passage, you'll not find the answer to this question on my face, but in this passage, when you look down on this passage, there is something that I think immediately strikes you, something different about what Paul now does and it's actually so obvious, so plain, so simple, that we might be in danger of overlooking it. It is this, that whereas in connection with the first three questions, he takes four verses to answer, in connection with this fourth question, he takes five verses to answer. That is to say, he takes twice as long to answer this question as any of the other questions, and as long to answer this question as to answer all of the first three questions put together. And that should strike us as being significant. Why should he spend just as much time on one question as he does on the first three questions? There must, be, there must be some reason in his mind, other presumably other than simply rhetoric and spin, that when he comes to the question, who can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ, it's as though he pauses and says to himself, now this is the question on which I really need to spend time. Now, why should that be? the Apostle Paul does not waste words. And the Apostle Paul is at the same time not only a great and a clear thinker, but he's obviously a superb pastor. So, there is some reason in Paul's thinking and in his affections for Christian believers in his experience, perhaps, of dealing with Christians that instinctively makes him linger on the answer to this fourth question, We might be forgiven for thinking that if you've answered the first three questions the way he's answered them, it's not even worth the trouble to ask the fourth question. But he asks the fourth question because it is, in fact, the question in many Christians' experience where the rubber really meets the road. It is one thing for us to be able to give the biblical argument that there is no opposition against us that can stand. It's also one thing for us to think about the accusations that are brought against us, and we know the biblical answer. The biblical answer is, do not bring your accusations against me, because Jesus Christ has already dealt with them. It's also true, isn't it, that we understand that if we are justified, by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, as he said at the beginning of the chapter, there is no possibility that we will be condemned. And yet it seems to me that perhaps the reason Paul spends so much time on this fourth question is because you can have all of these answers in place and still find yourself plagued by the question as to whether you might be separated from from the love of God in Jesus Christ. You can, as it were, get the theology right in answer to the first three questions, but there is a sense in which what Paul is addressing here is not the theology, not the doctrine. He is addressing the heart. And it is one thing, as we all know, to be crystal clear in our understanding of the theology of the gospel and the doctrines of the gospel, and it can be an altogether different thing to be reassured that the love of Christ is yours and nothing can ever separate you from it. Indeed, one of the most perplexing pastoral problems one can ever seek to solve is to deal with somebody who has an enormous grasp of the gospel, more has an unusual grasp of Reformed theology, but actually possesses no assurance whatsoever that he or she is the object of the special love of God in Jesus Christ. And it's not difficult to see how that's true, if at the end of the day we had this confidence that we miserable sinners who have disappointed the Lord Jesus day and daily since we became Christians were yet loved by Him and knew that we were loved by Him, do you think we would live in the poor, drooping way that you and I tend to live for Jesus Christ. So the very impoverishment that we feel in our Christian lives, I think, is proof positive that the Apostle Paul has, if you will excuse the phrase, hit the pastoral nail on the head when he says, it's one thing to answer the first three questions but are you able to answer the fourth question and know that nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ? Now, one of the clearest indications of that is the way in which we Christian people respond when something goes wrong in our lives. There are so many of us as Christians, as soon as something goes wrong in our lives, we draw the conclusion, He loves me not. We, we live the Christian life that way. Good things happen. He loves me. Bad thing happen. He loves me not. And we are like children playing in the meadow with the flowers. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And you and I, I'm sure, have met so many, experienced it ourselves, so many of us as Christians. As soon as something goes wrong, our default is to say, why is God against me? Why is He turned against me? Paul is wanting to take the gospel that he has been expounding in these earlier chapters and show how this gospel is the pharmaceutical remedy for the heart that doubts the love of God in Jesus Christ and fears that he or she may be separated from that love. Now, I think, and it's purely a personal question, a hypothesis. It carries no imprimatur and no obstat nihilo. It's purely a personal view of this passage. I think Paul answers this question on two different levels, and that's why I'm taking two different Sundays to it, so that we can start the year in Romans 8 as well as finish the year in Romans 8. Because, you'll see, he does a very interesting thing that he's not done before in answering these questions. He gives one kind of answer to his question in verses 35 and 36. He gives another kind of answer to his question in verses 37 and 39. And the interesting thing is this. His question is, who can separate me? But in verses 35 to 36, he doesn't answer a question beginning with the personal interrogative who. He answers a question that begins with the impersonal interrogative what. He mentions what's and not whose. And it's only later on that he actually turns to personalities, principalities, and powers. So, whereas he is always asking the question, who, and he is seeking to identify, it seems to me, the evil one who lies behind all these accusations the Christian experiences, he's answering this question very deliberately at two levels, because he understands, and here's the point to grasp, that the answer to the question, who, is usually hidden from our sight, in the what. Put it very simply, Satan does not ordinarily reveal himself in an in-your-face fashion because you would detect him. Rather, he works through means in order to cause you to doubt the love of God and to fear that God no longer loves you for all that you understand the gospel. And so, first of all, Paul, as it were, stares down the things in life that might seem to separate us from the love of God and often do seem to separate us from a deep consciousness of the love of God in Christ. And then he raises the question of the identity of the one and the ones who lie behind this. So, there are two things here in verses 35 to 36 that I want us to notice. First of all, the potential separators Paul lists, the potential separators that Paul lists, and then secondly, the argument clinchers that Paul uses, the potential separators. What potentially might separate me from the love of God in Christ? And then in response to that, what's the clinching arguments that Paul is able to use to bring him to the conclusion that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ? Well, he mentions seven things. Do you notice that? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and so on. Again, there may be some significance in the in the completeness of this, because he, he's really throwing this question out to everything that would seem to have the power to destroy the love of God for him or his consciousness in his heart of that love of God. And tribulation often does this. The word he uses for tribulation comes from the verb that means to press down or to press upon or to oppress. And it's true, isn't it? When anything presses down upon you, oppresses you, then very frequently you begin to lose that sweet sense of the love of God in Christ for you, and then you begin to extrapolate, to conclude from your loss of the sense of the love of God for you that perhaps He doesn't really love you after all. So, there is tribulation, and he says there is distress. The language he uses here pictures, uh, pictures as it were, somebody in a, in a, a sense of being confined in a, in a claustrophobic space, as it were, that causes distress, that causes inward agitation. And when we are inwardly agitated about whatever, it may be something trivial. It often is something trivial, The loss of your car keys can so easily lead to a sense of the loss of the love of God. Isn't that true? find yourself frustrated, and and what happens is your mind begins to get turned in upon yourself and turned in with the irritations of the world and how everything is against you, and you go into a kind of spiritual infantile regression when you're kind of inwardly crying out, why does nothing go right in my life? Why doesn't God sort this? Why doesn't God give me what I really need? He never gives me what I really need. You don't really love me. And we discover that though we thought we were spiritually mature, we often, as it were, go into that state of spiritual infantile regression. And then, of course, when we are persecuted, when we are persecuted. Maybe it's the fear of persecution, because often those who are actually persecuted, those who are really persecuted and who stand, are often absolutely flooded with a sense of the love of God. But the fear of persecution, perhaps that's the greatest fear in the American church. I've had people speaking to me about Islam in a state of panic, absolute panic, as though God had fallen off His throne and had ceased to love His people. And you see how we do this. We are such frightened people, and we give expression to it as though, as though the love of God could be dented by anything that happens. And so we fear persecution and the thought of persecution. Not the, not the actual persecution, just the thought of persecution. How could God possibly love us? I wonder if you've noticed in the Western church how fanatical people of a certain Christian stripe are in their conviction that the church will not go through the tribulation. Now, they say it's because of theological considerations. My dear friends, I am personally convinced it's got almost nothing to do with theological considerations. It's got to do with our craven fear that if we suffer persecution, we will lose all sense of the love of God for us and it's pervasive in some Christian circles. There are churches where they would not allow you to be a minister in that church unless you believe the church will never go through the persecution, the tribulation. And then there's famine, and then there's nakedness, and you can see you see what Paul is doing. He's moving, as it were, from the outside to the inside. There's general tribulation, and then there's inner distress, and then there's actual persecution, and then there is famine. There is actual material need when you don't have enough, when you are starving. And then there's nakedness, and then there's peril, and then, and here, Paul uses the same term he uses later on in chapter 13 about the magistrate not bearing the sword in vain, and that's the sword to execute people. And I have very little doubt he is actually thinking about the only one of these seven things that he has not yet experienced. He tells us, doesn't he, in 2 Corinthians? Is it 2 Corinthians 11? That he has experienced every single one of these and there's one thing he has yet to experience, and by all accounts of Christian tradition did experience, giving his life in death for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, these are not theoretical for the Apostle Paul. He has seen all of these enemies and stared them down and experienced them all before he has written this letter to the Romans. And he understands out of his own experience and understands out of his observation of the experience of others that so many Christians are dislodged by pain or hardship or difficulty or stress or persecution or material loss because our default apart from the fact that we have no longing for these things, which is completely natural. Our natural default, even as Christians, seems to be to assume that if bad things happen to us, then God cannot really love us the way we believed He loved us, because He wouldn't allow us, He wouldn't expose us to such harm. So these are potential separators, and it would be very surprising if one or other of them didn't touch a chord, strike a note in our own lives, just something in our conscience. Yes, uh, I I I I think I could take it if I had less in the material way, but persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword if any of those things happened to me, how could I possibly still be convinced that God loves me? They would be surely potential separators from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul faces these things. He doesn't bury his head in the sand and say, boy, I hope none of these things happens to me. He says, in the midst of these things, not behind them, before them, or after they are past, the providences of God are wonderful things when they're in the past, and we are still in the present. But He doesn't say, after all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And so, we come to my second question. If these are the potential separators that Paul lists, what are the argument-clinchers that Paul expounds? And dear ones, he surely wouldn't, as I've said, wouldn't have taken this time if he didn't think this was really important. I want you to notice several things. The first is this the very first thing he does, do you notice? He turns back to his Bible. He's able to think biblically. His instinct to any stray thought, what is God doing? Why are these things happening to me? Does God love me still? He loves me, He loves me not, is to bring all of these wayward thoughts back to the teaching of the Scriptures. And that's why he quotes from the 44th Psalm. 44th Psalm is an immense psalm. Better not get into it tonight, but it's surely an immense psalm in which the psalmist is saying, God, you did great things in the past. Will you not come again and do them in the present? And in the midst of that psalm, he uses these words that Paul cites here. As it is written, he says, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, what's the point? The point is, so what's unusual about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? You weren't promised anything different when you became a Christian, and if you believed anything different, it wasn't Jesus' gospel that you believed. This is par for the course. This is what the Christian life is like the reason I panic when these things happen to me is because it still hasn't dawned on me that the Savior I follow was despised and rejected of men, that He called me to a life of daily cross-bearing, that the Christian life is a narrow way, that Jesus says, we will suffer persecution because the Master suffered persecution— that we will find that there are many difficulties in life, that the pattern of the gospel is to conform us to a suffering and risen Savior. And even as we are transformed into the likeness of the risen Savior, the instrument the heavenly Father will use is exactly tribulation and persecution and famine and nakedness or peril or sword. And it's in our Bibles. Just why Peter, of all people, the thing about Paul is he never seemed to have cracked inside. He was steel inside all the way. But Peter was jello inside half of the way. But then when he is restored and the Lord Jesus has told him to strengthen the brothers in his ministry, do you remember how he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, he says, two things are strange. First, non-Christians think you're strange. Second, only non-Christians think it's strange when Christians suffer. Christians don't. So, he says don't think that anything strange is happening to you when you go through the fiery trial. Wait a minute, Peter. That's not the Christian life I signed up for. Well, says Peter, you didn't sign up for the Christian life. I once signed up for a Christian life of my own design, and I fell flat on my face. But when I began to understand that this was the way of Christ, This was the way of the loving Christ. This was one of the ways Christ loved me so much He was determined not to leave me as I was, but to transform me into His likeness. Then it dawned on my silly blockhead, of course there's nothing strange about the fiery trial. It's how it is for the Christian believer. And you see, as long as, as a Christian believer, I think there is no fiery trial, so long as the fire comes anywhere near me, I am going to conclude he doesn't love me any longer. It's, it's how it works. Grasp this, and no trial will be able to dent your total conviction of the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. Uh, But then you need to add this that the psalmist puts in place. Did you notice it? He says, we are being killed all the day long for your sake. That's it. That is it. When all of those things surround me, their pressures are upon me, I find myself experiencing suffering, being demeaned, perhaps being persecuted, suffering want in situations where all seems to be against me, then I remember these words that transform everything. This is the tincture that transforms everything and makes the ordinary glow for Jesus Christ, for your sake. For your sake, all for your sake, and you see that puts all of these things into a totally different light, doesn't it? Ah, we see, Lord Jesus, in your love for me. This is what the apostles saw. This is why they rejoiced when they suffered, because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. It was for His. Isn't this amazing? As you go through these things, you press into Jesus Christ, and you're able to say to Him, whisper to Him, Lord Jesus, this actually has almost nothing to do with me. My dear young friends, if you're beginning the Christian life and you're afraid of what it may mean for you to be a Christian, do seek to ask the Lord to teach you this lesson, because it will help you so much. When all of this comes upon you, you can in some sense, smile at the storm and say to the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, this hurts like anything, but I know it's got very little to do with me, and it's got everything to do with you, because it's for your sake. That's how you become more than conqueror. Think of that in terms of persecution, the way people are just want to get their knife into you. Some of you work in offices, or you're in fraternity or sorority groups, about which I know absolutely nothing, or you find yourself in situations where you're being demeaned, and it hurts, but you're able to stand in the middle of it, and even while people think they are lording it over your life, they can't understand why it is that you're not caving in and you're just absorbing it, and you're taking it, because in communion with your blessed Lord Jesus Christ, you're saying to Him, Lord Jesus, this is not only for Your sake and glory. This may be the means by which You topple the crown of self upon one and another's heads, but Lord Jesus, in the midst of this, you are actually using these things to bring me into a sweeter communion with you. I'm standing there thinking, Lord Jesus, this is nothing by comparison with what you went through for me and your amazing love for me. Lord, thank you for giving me this experience. Now, the great question is this, and Paul answers the question, What's the absolute foundation of this? Look again at what he says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Now, to some extent or another, we've worked through all of that, this evening, haven't we? Superficially, yes, but we've touched almost every word in that, except the words with which He closes, which are the key words. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who… Now, notice the tense. It's not through Him who loves us. He does love us. But that's not what Paul is saying. The reason we have this confidence that we can be more than conquerors is that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And he's really pointing us back, isn't he, to what he said in Romans chapter 5, that the demonstration of God's love for us is not to be found in the circumstances of our lives, although He expresses His love for us in His sovereign providences. But we are far from experts at accurately reading providence. We don't go to the circumstances of our lives to be utterly convinced of the love of God in Christ for us. Because then we end up saying, He loves me, He loves me not. Oh, He does love me. Oops, He doesn't love me. Yes, He does love me. Oh, maybe He doesn't love me after all. But He's already taught us God was proving His love to us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And He said again already in this chapter. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, that's the proof that He will with Christ give us all things. And so, even as he comes to the conclusion of this amazing chapter, there's a sense in which he's bringing us back to the foundation of the gospel, to the cross of Jesus Christ, to the place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. O oh, trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. Beneath the cross of Jesus I fain would take my stand." And when that's gripped you… Now, a little grammar as we end. Remember high school English? And the difference between the objective genitive and the subjective genitive, half of us never managed to grasp that. I've assumed all the way along that in these words the Apostle Paul, when he speaks about the love of God in Christ, is speaking about God's love for us, and I'm certain He is. But you see, our love for Him Is altogether dependent since we love him because he first loved us. Our sense of love for him is dependent on having. This is true, isn't it? We all know this. When we are less than gripped by the love of God for us, we love him very little. But when we are overwhelmed by the love of God for us, we feel we could overwhelm Him in response with love for Him. And at the end of the year, that's where we need to stand. It was great to sing my friend, my late friend, Jim Boyce's hymn, one of my favourite. I hate being photographed, and I hate most photographs of myself for reasons that will be apparent but one of my most favorite photographs in the world is a photograph taken in the pulpit of 10th Presbyterian Church of Dr. DeWitt, Dr. Boyce, and myself, I think in 1983, standing singing. Now, Dr. Boyce had one of the worst voices you could ever imagine, but he loved that big pulpit because he could sing his heart out. And although he couldn't sing well, he could write fine hymns, one of which we've been singing. Many of you know he died not long after writing that hymn, Cancer of the Liver, died very quickly and died with great grace. And as younger men would gather round him, this was like a scene from any century in the Christian church, as younger men would gather round him and sing his hymns to him and with him, when they would sing this hymn, when it came to the end, as Dan Cole was urging us to do, what can separate my soul from the God who made me whole, wrote my name in heaven's scroll? Jim would raise his hand in a fist, nothing, hallelujah, nothing, hallelujah. But you see, if you're going to be able to raise your fist at all these things tribulation, famine, persecution, nakedness, peril, sorrow, you need to know God loves you. And it turns out in the Christian gospel that the very first thing some of us ever learned is the last thing some of us ever really taken? in, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So I have a very simple question for you tonight, are you sure, are you sure He loves you? Where would you be looking to find out? There's only one place you can find out, and that's the place where He died on the cross for your sins, to prove that God loves you. So don't go anywhere else, because there is nowhere else to go but to come to the cross and the Savior. Heavenly Father, seal Your Word in our hearts as we come to the end of this year. Thank You for all the blessings You've given to us, and look forward to the year that is to come. Flood our hearts, we pray, with the love of God for us through Your Holy Spirit, that we may be sure that nothing can ever separate us from Your love in Christ Jesus. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.